Coach Greg Patton began his first tennis coaching job at UC Santa Barbara in 1976, kickstarting a 42-year career that would take him across the world and impact thousands of athletes along the way, including some of the top players in today's world rankings. In the spring of 2018, Coach Patton retired from Boise State University, finishing his career as the winningest active collegiate tennis coach fourth in all-time victories at 808 and with 24 conference championships. Since retiring, Patton continues to work with the top college players in the country. Off the court, Coach Patton inspires and motivates teams, businesses, and other organizations through speaking events across the country. Coach Patton, welcome to Down 40 Love. <laughs> I like veterans, dudes. <laughs> what'd you say i like that down 40 love that you gotta work your butt off to get that game back you know? <laughs> we'll That's talk a- we'll yeah. talk about down 40 love a little bit um a little bit later but let's start with how you got into tennis oh wow uh that's a good question i i got into tennis as all well. it's like it's amazing how things in life happen and and also create these unbelievable opportunities and uh it all basically happened i got shot in the eye with a bb gun when i was around 11 years old 12 years old and lost a vision in my right eye and uh my mother in her infinite wisdom uh decided that the best way for me to learn eye hand coordination is learn how to hit tennis balls and to go back a little bit is my father was a baseball player and uh when he got back from the war you know he's during World War II, he was in the Navy and even got injured. But when he got back, he uh, had the GI Bill and went to Santa Clara and got his uh, undergrad there in journalism and played baseball. And uh, then went to Northwestern, got his master's in journalism and uh, became a sports writer. So sports was really big in our family. And my dad really wanted the boys, and I'm the oldest of seven, but he wanted all the boys to play baseball. And uh, after my injury when uh, and the surgeries that I had with my eyes, there's no way I had any eye-hand coordination. I couldn't catch a ball. I couldn't hit a ball. So my mother took me down. This was in Santa Barbara, which has great tennis uh, facilities, a great tennis culture, and uh, just incredible tennis coaches. And she went and started taking lessons at the city courts. In those days, everybody played at the city courts. It's called the municipal tennis courts at a stadium, 12 courts. And um, the community, the tennis community kind of revolved around that. So if you were at a club, they would still always, all the good players would come down to Muni. But she took lessons there, and it turned out she was really good. And from then, she started giving, the reason she started taking lessons was to see how she could teach me because I was struggling so much. And uh, in her infinite wisdom, she realized uh, it, it, the, the court is constant. It, it, and when you, when I would watch, my job was to really find where the ball bounced because the ball would come and then put myself in a position when it was in my wheelhouse, in my hitting zone. So she went out and threw tons of balls to me. I mean, tons and tons and millions of balls. And I probably didn't hit very many balls in the first few months. I started getting the hang of it. And as it turned out, um, and it turned out several things, 
the pro who had been teaching her, he she was really good. <laughs> My mother was kicking ass and taking names. <laughs> she uh, and she was vibrant, vivacious, personality, and uh, everybody loved her. And so the pro in town saw her teaching me, and he goes to her. He goes, Rita, would you like to be part of our staff or coaching staff? So he just started teaching and coaching in Santa Barbara at the municipal tennis courts. And uh, she got a lot of kids because, you know, people saw her working with me. So that's how I got into tennis. And uh, my brothers, uh, my three brothers never got into tennis. They were with my dad doing it, but my mom tried to teach them. But, and my brother did play high school tennis, Mark, but he was played college baseball, played JC baseball and uh, really pursued the baseball deal. And, uh, so that's how I got it. But my two, uh, two of my three sisters were really good and both played on college scholarships. And my one sister now, and um, my one sister, Colleen is a, is a coach has been coaching, played on the circuit for a little bit, was a great doubles player. And she coaches in uh, Virginia now. And her journey's taken her from Hawaii to Colorado Springs and now to Virginia in um, near Charlottesville up in the mountains of Mount, uh, Blue Ridge. And my other sister, Mo, was was a top-ranked national player. And when she was for freshman year in college, she uh, she got really sick and uh, she had a, a disease and we didn't no one knew about it. And by the time we really find it, found out what it was, it was too late. And uh, she had hemochromatosis, which is an iron blood disease, which um, is fatal. And so she passed in her 20s. And... Um, which was devastating for all of us, especially, especially for my mother and for myself, because I coached my two sisters. Uh, I took over, my mom worked with them and then I worked because I started coaching at UC Santa Barbara. But so it's, it's the, the, the moral of the story is almost that it, a lot of things in life may seem like they, they be uh, hindrances or they're travesties or, you know, it, but what happens out of that chaos this beautiful rose blossoms and, and your career and your life is shaped by it. So she was so patient, just kept hitting tennis balls to me. I'd have to figure out where the ball landed and try and find my wheelhouse, but I was addicted to it. And if, and uh, I loved hitting tennis balls and I still do. I mean, I go out every day, I do a two on ones with a bunch of guys that are a little bit younger. Than <laughs> me. And uh, that's only about college coaching is, I found that I didn't hit as many tennis balls as I wanted to, you know? So <laughs> I don't uh, think in I, our time, in our time working together at Boise state, I don't think I saw you hit one tennis ball in two seasons. You I, know? I, I probably did. I was probably feeding balls a lot <laughs> and organizing. And I was so focused on the team uh, building a program and building something at Boise state that was special. And, uh, I probably didn't. I a little bit later in my life, I started trying to hit in the mornings with several guys, and then have practice. But you know, the job the job as a college coach is all consuming. It's it's scheduling, <laughs> it's recruiting. You know, it's it's raising money. It, it's you know, it's then it's promoting in the community. So there's so many things that it's organizing practice, having a practice schedule. And what you're going to do that day and then, you know, utilizing the six courts that we have 
And uh, so a lot of people don't realize how much goes into it. But I think your own personal tennis as a coach takes backseat. Unless, and I do know some coaches that really jump into practices quite a bit. And I think I did that at Irvine for the 13 years. But then as I grew older and I, you know, I felt like I couldn't keep up with the guys in terms of the, the you know, their talent. And so I think I, I, fo- I focused more. But once I retired, man, I'm on the court every day. I was, you know, every day. And I, we have different groups of guys I play doubles with or guys, some guys I play singles with. And there's a group of guys that we do two on ones because it's more intense. You know, you get two guys working. <laughs> We try to really work them. So, you know, tennis is a fountain of youth at, at, at my age. And it's it's all about prolonging this beautiful life, you know, that, that we've been given. And uh, and there's no doubt that, as you know, it, you know, tennis players and all the studies in terms of genealogy and is, is the fact that tennis players live longer than any other athletes. And I learned that a long time ago because we have a kinesiology department at Boise State, and one of the guys that was working on genealogy was about the lifespan and the health of athletes, came up to me one day and he says, what athletes do you think live the longest? And and I thought about it and I go, oh, and I thought, I thought it might be a trick question. Like I would say tennis, but he'd say, no, no, it's running. So I said, oh, it's, it's long distance runners. And he, and he goes, hold it right there. Hold it right there. He says, Greg, coach. He goes, tennis players live the longest. And and I and I really got uh, interested in that. Well, what? Why does this happen? And if you read it, and um, you know, uh, Mark Kovacs just came out with a great article that just confirms it. So what's happened is a lot of uh, physiologists and people in kinesiology were trying to figure out, disprove this, which has been for the studies have been happening for fifteen years that tennis players last, you know, live longer. And uh, I, I, and what's happened is we realize that, first of all, tennis is incredibly rhythmic, right? It has a cadence, has a beat. And that is like our, our, our blood system, our circulatory system, and our heart rate. We as human beings function on cadence, on rhythm, on the beat, right? Boom, boom, boom. So... That's kind of a physiological thing. The second thing is, is there's stress, no stress. In tennis, you play 12 seconds, 10 seconds, maybe how long it would be, but then there's a break, and then you do it again. Even when you're training, you hit a ball, usually you're picking up balls once in a while, or and you, you, they stop, and then you start again, which is really good for the system, is that you have a chance to rest. So it's not beating you up as much as it would. Even you play four hours like, you know, Alcaraz and and <laughs> did the other day. They played four hours, three sets in four hours. But the thing is, there's that there's a, the changeovers in that. There's there's a chance to rest, which is really important. The other uh, other thing is um, the fact that it's social, and it's incredibly social. To play, you need upon. There's a kind of a closeness in terms of when you're playing and there's a culture that's created that creates longevity in people's lives meaning you know the fellowship the camaraderie the sense of community then also it's the um it's also decision making which is what it does is it ignites it ignites the hippocampus which is at the frontal lobe and those things are those things affect movement touch language and music 
cadence. Remember the beat. So these are things that all come in there. And the decision-making that's instantaneous is that you're really igniting the brain, which in effect ignites and incites health in the body. So it, it was a great thing. It, it's a great, and so I'm more into it ever than ever. This is like my, and I mean it, this is like my fountain of youth. I play, you know, I, I hit every day and I have a group, uh, every day I have a group of different guys that I play with, you know, and some guys are near my age and so I'm kicking ass and taking names. Some of them are a little younger and they're, they're making me suffer, which I, I thank them profusely day in and day out. So that's kind of how I got into tennis. And so I think the lesson that, that's going to be drawn out of this is out of tragedy comes this incredible blossoming and uh, this this glorious sunrise of what can be and where your life has changed. So it, it's my mother changed my life and I changed the lives of my sisters. And um, and then I've been involved with, you know, coaching college tennis for over 40 years. And I have uh, an extended family of hundreds of players that I've coached. And then working with the national team, um, I have other players that, you know, that I've had long relationships with, you know, Jim Courier, Sampras, um, Martin Blackman, uh, all these guys in tennis that I coached when I was a young coach in my late 20s, early 30s, I was coaching the national team back in those days. So what are, coach, what are the most important leaderships you've learned throughout the years? Throughout the years, leadership is um, it's compassion. It's be humble, be kind, kindness. I mean, the greatest example of that now is Ted Lazo, right? It's like every, you know, the day that, you know, it was kind of funny. Is when I was growing up, there's some coaches and, you know, years ago, I'm 71 now, but years ago when I first got into coaching, I got into coaching when I was 22, 23 years old at UC Santa Barbara. I was on the team. I was a captain. And then my coach left and the AD said, well, you're the captain. I was helping help fundraise for the team. And he says, uh, we're going to make you the coach. And uh, now that was a lifelong experience for me. And what I learned a lot of times is the connecting with the player on a, on a, on a level that is um, that is a great level to be on because when you're a parent, you're trying to gain your independence away from them. But when you have a coach, this is someone that's your advocate. This is someone who's your mentor, your guide. And I really think that for all players in all sports is to have that mentor is really important. We all have a story. We all have a story. And in the story, you know, we have four characters. We have, and what, what would the characters be, Renee? What would you think in every story? Every story has. Well, two that come to mind would be a protagonist and the antagonist. You have a, you have a hero and you have a villain. Okay. So you have a hero and a villain. You have a victim, right? And you have a mentor. You have a sage, a guide. So I realized a long time ago that the most important, everybody says the most important figure of those four is the hero, right? And I go, no, wait a second. The most important figure, most important character, most important person in any and every story is the sage, is the guide. Star Wars. It's Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda. They got two. Uh, Mr. Uh, the, the Karate Kid, Mr. Miyagi. He's, you know, he's the guy that taught 
my kid, karate. You have in other ones, uh, Dumbledore in um, Lord of the Rings, right? And uh, and then uh, then you have Gandalf in uh, no Gandalf says Lord of the Rings, and Dumbledore is in uh, Harry Potter, right? So you just keep going and going. I mean, you got every story has a sage, has a guide that's instrumental in the growth of the athlete or of the hero and to make a hero. So um, I realized that I think that in terms of coaching is it's really important to be a guide, to be a mentor. Okay. And mentors, there is friendship, there is family, there is love. There's also, there's someone that holds them accountable and shows them the way and they're, they're a guide, right? A coach is a guide. I'm going to guide you to the promised land. You need to follow. You need to listen. You need to, you know, join me on this path. And lots of times, I, I love this part. I heard this years ago. There's a lot of people feel that obstacles block the path. But what, I, and this is what I learned a long time ago, is, is obstacles are the path, right? And that's how, as a coach, he creates obstacles for the for them to be able to transverse through in terms of reach the promised land, right? So, um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great analogy, and and I think about it uh, all the time. I, I you know, and also I feel that like the guide is he he prepares for the future, he learns from the past, and he performs in the present. So that goes to being mindful, right? Incredibly mindful, and mindful it means being present. Like we're talking right now, be fully present on our lives is right now. Being uh, focused, focus on the task that we're going to face and that we need to do. And then it's uh, non-judgmental. You know, is you you can't you you won't survive long in in like in education or even in business if you're not mindful. You know, and 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 fully focused, fully present, and non-judgmental. You know, it's like you're going to get some hits. You're going to get some hits. And what you do is you'll learn from them. The people who get hit and then they make excuses or blame, they're never going to attain the mountaintop. They're never going to reach the mountaintop. Right? And so you have to welcome. You have to welcome the uh, the journey. You have to welcome their obstacles. You have to welcome the adversity. You have to welcome the unfairness. You have to, you know open your heart to it and then embrace it and then go from there and you'll be surprised in terms of what you can achieve. So I think in terms of what comes right down to coaching is you truly have to understand, uh, you, you truly have to understand the whole journey and that, and also that we learn the most sometimes from losses, right? Our greatest teacher and our greatest mentor is losses. And I was reading this book by Roger Fed, uh, not by Roger, but it was about him called Master. And I think the, the author is uh, Cleary. And it's a fantastic one because, you know, uh, Roger has had some obstacles. He's had some hardships. He lost his coach, who I think was, um, his name was Jim Smith, who was an Aussie, and uh, Patrick Smith. And, it, and, it, and that's what really could have, destroyed Roger, but he learned from and even transversed. And that's the reason also that Roger has a sense 
of presence and awareness and insightfulness. He's insightful about these things, about the losses and that. And he grows on and he understands too that our greatest ally is our opponent, right? Is our opponents. That's who we learn the most. <laughs> and you want to almost praise the fact that they, the levels that they can reach because they provide a pathway and uh, they provide the guide, the mentorship in some ways of going there yourself. Would Nadal be as good as he is if it hadn't been for Roger or Djokovic? And now what's happened is Djokovic has been kind of like the guy guiding Alcaraz, right? So Alcaraz is following this path in terms, and Nadal as well. I mean, obviously Nadal has played a great presence in Alcaraz's life. And I mean, as a role model, as a, you know, as, as a, as a hero, you know, so that, Coach, that's really interesting stuff. Let's pick up on that last thought about Djokovic and Alcaraz in part two welcome to part two people coach um you started talking a little bit about uh the Djokovic and Alcaraz rivalry I think it'd be really interesting to hear your perspective on it um I I think it's um it's so great for the game um and uh it's I I love this this competition that that I I think that you know as I was saying a little bit earlier, is that Fed now is retired. Nadal is on his last, uh, who knows, but I think you need, in terms of the sport to grow, you need to have this rivalry and you need to have, you know, the, the old wise man in Djokovic now playing and fighting for his throne now against this new upstart, this incredible talent in Alcaraz, you know, and I think it's good. I think it's good for the sport. It's, it's uh, the, the excitement just yesterday. I was in the weight room lifting weights with a bunch of guys, and we watched uh, the match with Alcaraz and Djokovic, and that that the tiebreaker and the, the three hours, or I'm sorry, the four hours for three sets, it, it was enthralling. It, you know, it's just you, you need you need to see that you need to see and feel this competition. And and these two, you know, these two almost like giants in the sport do battling it out. You know, it's 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 just wonderful. And you see the different, you see the experience of Djokovic, and you see this unbridled athleticism of of Carlos. You know, and, and the thing that amazes me is his athleticism and how you know how fast and quick he is, and a lot of shots that that Joe put up that seemed unobtainable to return. And he not only did he return, but sometimes he came back with a better shot that put, you know, Djokovic on his heels. From your perspective, how will Alcaraz make Djokovic a better player? Um, how will Alcaraz make Djokovic better? I, I think he, I think in everything in life, you need someone pushing you to, to take another step and to take a step higher. And it, I think it's motivated him in terms of the fact that here's this young upstart who, who, you know, is, is, is his equal. And, and I think what it's going to do is for the both of them, I mean, I think Djokovic, and this is what fed did to joke is he, he 
help Djokovic and Nadal work even harder and be more professional about it and have more uh, something at stake. It wasn't that easy. It's not easy. And anything that's worth anything is not easy. You want in life, you know, be it a great relationship or being success. And, you know, and, and I feel like uh, that, that spiritual joy is even more important than material success. And, you know, so you see that they're pushing each other to the brink of excellence. And, and this is going to pull a lot of other guys. I mean, the athleticism and the guys coming into sport right now, it's amazing. I mean, look at Tommy Paul, you know, Tommy Paul is not this intense like Alcaraz, but he's, he's this chilled American, you know, <laughs> a lot of talent who loves the, the joy of the journey, you know, and he doesn't define his, his worth based on wins and losses, which in the long run is going to serve him really well. I mean, he's talented and he, you know, he's, like I said, he's, he, he's kind of got, I think like Tommy Paul is really exciting because he's, he loves the journey. You know, he loves the obstacles. He loves, he's like the guy that, you know, tries to do triple jumps or triple spins off of a cliff into the lake, you know, and <laughs> joy that he attains. And sometimes he's going to do a belly flop and just annihilate himself <laughs> and come back and want to do it again. And so you see all these other guys that are knocking at the gates. There's so many young, great players coming up. And then you look at the Americans. I don't think there's ever been a greater time. And, and this works out in the scenario of my dreams is this. Yeah, these two superstars. Now, even Nadal might come back in because I don't really know. You know, Nadal is trying to rehab. So I, I really don't know the story of Rafa. But you have now Djokovic and Alcaraz. And, and you have these other in America, this is like giving them a bar to achieve, you know, that this is where they want to be and that they're willing to sacrifice and put, you know, and, and educate themselves intellectually about the game, tactically about the game, physiologically about the game. And so this is going to put that push them to use every tool that they can and experience they can to reach that level, because that's the promised land. Hmm. So you have in that group, you have you know, uh, Ben Shelton, the guy's an incredible talent. Tommy Paul, they're the new order that's coming in. And then you have uh, Chris Eubanks. I mean, a phenomenal story. I mean, and and I had the, the joy and the pleasure of coaching him in uh, 2016 on a national collegiate team and spent two weeks in France coaching him. And he, his you know, the, the joy he brings and his, his skill set so great. And the, the, the upside of him is so wonderful. And, and the thing is, he's almost like a pure soul He's his kindness and his just his affability. And, you know, this is great for the sport. It's great for us. It's great for Americans to see some guys that are knocking on heaven's gate, knock, knock on heaven's door as Bob Dell aptly put <laughs> Coach, what does down 40 love mean to you? Oh, it's adversity, and I love it. I mean, down 40 love means that you're on the brink of, of <laughs> disaster, but you still have a way to come back. And sometimes those are the greatest moments for an athlete. And it's like the greatest moments 
and our lives and other things that, you know, who, that we, we have this special gift that we learn what adversity is. We, sometimes there's unfairness and how to overcome it. And there's sometimes you're, you know, you're at the gates of heaven and you're, you're playing some out of worldly talent and you're, you're battling. And it's also the mindfulness is, you know, I, I talk to our players a lot about, we don't go out to win the match. Don't go out to win the set. Don't go out to win the point. Don't be focusing on winning matches, sets, games, points. Be focused on winning the ball. The, the only thing that's going on in your life right now is that ball. Make the ball. Do something with the ball. Analyze what's going on with the ball that's been hit to you. Is it offensive? Is it a scorcher? Do you have to defend? Is it a neutral ball that or that you need to neutralize? Or is it a ball that gives you the offensive ability to use whatever that weapons you have to terms of attack? So it's a great analogy about life is to be, like I said a little bit earlier, is about being fully present, fully focused, and mindful. And, and that's what tennis is all about. And that's what down 40 love means to me is you're down you're at the gates of hell and now are you gonna get <laughs> you know are you gonna and it just takes one step at a time you don't start thinking oh my god he's got three game points right or you know he's got four game points on me that he can win and you, you're you're thinking all i gotta do is win now and i think nope. that's a great lesson in life Coach, what um, what would be your best down 40 love story from your time as a college coach? Oh, my. Oh, there's there's a bunch of them. I think um, uh, the one the one that really stands out. The most, there's a lot. And I, I mean, I could go on all on day because I, I love <laughs> I love I'm a, an adventure seeker. I'm a thrill seeker. And and I love those moments in, in, in my of my life. I'm going to talk about. Well, one of the greatest is we're playing Clemson at the Blue Gray. And we are in the finals of the Blue Gray. And so we have a big crowd, and Clemson won, and we lost the doubles point. So we have to win four of the singles. And we are down in four of the matches, even five of the matches. We're down breaks. We lose the first set in five of the – it looks like we're doomed. And our guys just kept coming back. And heroes on each and every court were down, and but the 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 joy of the competition and the fact that the guys I was saying that celebration without success, I mean um, success. Let's start at the beginning. This is really important. Success without celebration is failure. Think about it. So we have to take our opportunities to rejoice on every ball that we've won or every point that we've won. And so through the courts, there's this, 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 this chorus of let's go Broncos, go blue. I'm in there. That's a break Broncos. And they're celebrating and they're celebrating. They're celebrating. And we're fighting ourselves back from the abyss of that. The jaws of defeat are 
snapping at our rear ends <laughs> and so so it comes down to and, and i think this is probably the main reason i remember this is it comes down to the g-man it comes down to my son garrett who is the last match on and we've tied the score okay and his match he's down i think like five two in the third and he's fighting all the guys are keeping him so he's just every ball coming back with spectacular plays. He gets to a tiebreaker and he's down. He's fighting off match points in the tiebreaker. He's been fighting match points off. And every time he gets a match point, he comes up with some speak. He just, he just enjoys the moment. So I couldn't stand. I mean, I was so usually, I mean, I always, I like the nerves and I like getting a little bit, it's a heightened sense of living. And <laughs> in this one, I had to get away from the court because I didn't want to see him see me starting to be nervous you know and this is not only a member of my team it's now it's, it's my son fighting for us and and garrett as a matter of fact that, that year or in those he had played so many matches when he was the 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 determining match to win he was the one that was said you know that and we we tried to glorify the fact to be able to play for the whole team is that you're the matches on the line is on your court the score is three three and you're the one that's playing the singles point to win the match. And he won like four or five for us during the course of probably two seasons, five or six, really. But the biggest one was when we won the blue gray. And that propelled us up into the that propelled us up into the top 10. Probably I think we were seven or six in the nation with that win when he beat the guy from Clemson. And it was just joyful. It was a dance that everything was on the line. And like I said, <laughs> cannot beat that every ball that you hit. Is his magnitude is 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 humongous. It is gigantic. It is so you know, and you win it, and then the guys are yelling, screaming, and celebrating. But we haven't won the match. We just we're we rejoice in each and every step towards the mountaintop. So I think that was one of my. I felt that on the other and the same thing when we were playing Georgia in the NCAA's when I was at UC Irvine. I had a guy named Mike Briggs. And he fought, you know, so gallantly. And he was playing a guy named uh, Francisco. Um, oh, my gosh. I can't. Um, Francisco Montana? Yes. Yes, that's it. <laughs> and he's playing him. And 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 my, Briggs, he has in the, uh, he has for the um, match point, he has a match point, and uh, I give him a sign to do this, which means kick, serve, and then get in. So I go, because Montana's on the ad side. It's, it's you know, this is to win the match. He's uh, serving it. And uh, he gets the greatest kick, serve ever. And Montana floats his backhand. He floats a ball up. Briggs comes and sticks a volley cross court. And one thing about Montana, he was so fast. And he ran it down, but he slashed at it. He couldn't hit it. He just slapped at it. Didn't even hit the middle of strings, just kind of the side. And the ball goes floating over, floating over. And, and there's a picture of me. This is Athens, Georgia, and the crowd is, is packed. <clears throat> this is the anteaters, you know. We were these, these, <laughs> these, these, these hound dogs that have come from California you know, and and everybody in Georgia was going, who is these anteaters? And, and and I'm up like this, like, oh my God, we beat Georgia, Georgia, and from all these thousands of people. 
and the ball, I see the ball going in slow motion. I'll never forget it. Slow motion, slow motion, because it's it's past Briggsy, but it's a slash, and the ball lands right on the line. And then <laughs> the crowd goes crazy, so they save match point. And then Briggsy uh, fought his, for his life, the, but he lost that in a tiebreaker. So, but that was that, you know, that moment. And he lost an exciting tiebreaker. But it was like, I'll never forget it. And I had a sleepless night, and I remember flying back. And then Briggsy and Groneman in that same tournament uh, lost in the finals of the doubles in the same type of a match, came down to the third set tiebreaker, and they had the match of national championship with the individuals. But as in our culture, that we celebrate that and rejoice, and it's so great to have the individuals do well in the individual aspects of it. But really, this was a team sport. And that was the match that if we beat Georgia, we're in the semifinals. That was the round of 16. I'm sorry, the quarterfinals. So then we get in, in the semifinals, and it gets in the final four. And so both Irvine's over there, and that, that was the one that all of our players – our lives and our hearts was on the line that time. That that's a moment in time that I'll never forget. And when I die and go to heaven, I'm going to pick a bone with it with St. Peter at the pearly gates. I'm going to say, well, no, can you give him a little bit of a, and the ball could have missed by maybe an inch. <laughs> and we, we'd be in the final four and who knows where he'd go. I had a great team that year. Mark Kaplan, who went on to be top 80 in the world and the ATP, Trevor Croneman, who uh, went to be top three in the nation and in doubles ATP with Mike Briggs. And all those guys won the pro circuit. So it was Croneman, Croneman, Briggs, and Kaplan, Mark Kaplan, all went on the circuit and played and did pretty well. But the one thing that whenever we get together, we always talk about those magical moments, those magical moments when life stands still and you're rejoicing. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's um, you know, it's uh, and it's you know, it's so fascinating, and we are so fascinated with sports, is due to the fact that we can evaluate all the twists and turns of competition, and we can, and we can relate it to our own lives. You know, it's uh, and this is what you know, you relate this to your life, and you realize how illuminating, how radiant it is. And all these moments resonate for us with the rest of our lives, you know. So, and, and that's what the competition brings, you know, is the ability. And our greatest ally is our competitor. And once you realize that, there's no enemy, as our competitors are the ones that will bring us. And who, if you have the right attitude and the right mindset, is that these are the ones that are going to take you to the to those where you're knocking on heaven's door, like Bob Dylan so aptly. <laughs> saying, you know, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> so there's heaven on earth. There's heaven on earth, even to this day. My heaven on earth is just hitting that perfect backhand, you know, and, and hitting the ball in the forehand and how it feels, how it feels. It's so great to hit a tennis ball. I don't think you can get that in pickleball. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thankful that you mentioned pickleball and not me. I've been tempted. but <laughs> oh, any, sport, any game's great. Yeah, it's yeah. You know, the four things in, in life that every um, every society shares in all cultures is uh, music. Music's really important. 
It's celebration, like I just said. Celebration. Every culture has celebrations, festivals, rejoicing, and 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 every culture has rejoicing. And and then it's play. Every culture has play. That's how we teach people to live life. Is you have play, and we can we can play till the day we die in our eighties and our nineties. You just have the will, and what it does, it keeps you alive. And then the last thing is love, and that's family. And uh, that's family and it's friends and it's community. And that's the thing about, you know, college tennis. That was so great. And that's the reason I, I really love coaching world team tennis. I coach our national teams. I've coached our junior national teams to world championships and, and with wonderful young men. And I coach our collegiate team at the Masters U is that that whole idea of that, that we compete for each other. And then we know the meaning and the beauty and the essence and the fragrance of love, right? Because we love to play, but we love to play for each other and the friendships that are developed and playing on a team for each other. And it goes to, I'll make this really quick. Why do we play? You know, and I've asked that a lot of times with our players, why do we play? And let them say, well, it's a great way to meet girls. It's I'm going to get that tennis scholarship. I want to be, <laughs> make money. I play because my parents make me. Or whatever, but I was in obviously I was looking at the time as like looking because they loved it. That you loved, you're in love with the game. And there's that and and being in love means the ups and downs. When you're in love with a person, with your wife, your girlfriend, uh, you know, what happens is if there's there's downtimes and they hurt. And so you understand that is like complain, there's the love. Because if you love it, there's a pain if you don't are successful at it. But it's really just the idea of just competing. But I said that question. Some guys said, you know, lots of different things. Why they they love to play and or why they play. And then someone said, I, I, I love it for the feeling. And I go, the feeling. So and and so you 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 would assume that the feeling would be to win. And and I realized that no, it wasn't because I asked the coaches on myself. I go, what's the greatest feeling? Because so and so loves the feeling. What do you think the feeling is? And they said to win. I said, no, it's not. This is not going. This is where I'm coming from. My own personal belief is the greatest feeling is to play. Most of the world are spectators. We're participants. Whatever you do, be a participant. Be a deal maker. Be at the essence of it. Be at the core of what you're doing. Embrace it. So that means to participate, to play. The greatest feeling is to play. Not be a spectator, but to be a participant right in the middle of it. Second greatest feeling is to serve others. Okay? And that's the reason team sports are so great. And that's the reason team tennis is so great. Is you have some people that you're playing for each other. You're serving each other. You make each other better in practice. You make each other better in their personal lives. So that's an incredible feeling. The next one is to do it well. Okay, so whatever you do is do it well. When you're playing tennis, train well. Bring out the best attitude you can in the practice session. Enjoy the fact that you're at the state of heightened living and that joyful childlike sense of play when you compete. Then the last one is to win, but it's not the most important. Winning just means win. W means what? I means important. N means now. And I've been talking about being in the presence the whole time. So 
what's important now is the most important thing is is at the end it's not i should say the most important thing because i think playing participating doing it well serving others are even more important than winning but winning still is can't can knock the fragrance of it (laughs) tastes so good yeah i i'd argue and say that's why we play but you you've taught me through the years going back to the beginning I mean, I was 23 years old and I took a, a flight from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Boise, Idaho. Oh my I had, God. I had <laughs> no money in my pocket. I probably had $300 in my pocket. And, and I come into your world, which is full of spiritual energy. Uh-huh. I never met anybody like you, coach. Uh-huh. And it, and as you know, and probably remember, it took me time to adapt. I was very resistant, I think, our first semester together. And then I went to Stanford for 10 weeks and worked with Coach Gould and Coach Brennan. And I came back in the fall and you said, what happened to you? You know, like it, there was this transformation and it was just the experience that I needed being out in Palo Alto to come back and to really embrace who you are and what you're all about. And and I think what you taught me most of all is that leadership is a spiritual game. It's been evident in our conversation today, you know, on this podcast, your command of emotional mastery and what really moves the heart in an individual and what drives leadership and, and eventually results and the wins that we all love is second to none. You know, and that's why you're one of the best coaches in the world across sports and why I, you know, do my best to stay in touch with you because you're the one with the infinite wisdom, you know, and we can always learn, you know, from being in your orbit. Um, Final question, coach, uh, before we, uh, we see where we can find you online, what would you like your legacy to be? Whoa. Um, that's a great question. Um, kindness, thank kindness. The uh, and my legacy is that um, there's that's joyful, joyful kindness and humility. It's really important. So uh, I would say uh, that I uh, and, uh, and I'll bring a biscuit in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, every morning, like Ted Lasso brings that biscuit. I mean, and I, I would hope that is in that the love. It's life is too short not to be in love with it, in love with the people you're in, involved with. You know, have that love other than just tolerating or going through the motions and that is just to do it uh, with fireworks and celebration, music, <laughs> movement, touch and language. All those things that bring elegance to to our lives. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I hope so. And also that, hey, you have a pretty good vacuum once in a while, one hander. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> once in where, a great- where can people find you online? Oh, boy, that's a good question. I did. I have a, a website. I don't know if I still have it. Uh, you still have it. 
<laughs> I think it's coachgregpatton.com, I think. Either that or coachpatton.com. Yeah, I, I gotta I gotta check it out. You you should look you should see if the URL the general.com is available. Because if I remember correctly, that was just one of your one of your many nicknames. I know. Well, <laughs> I, I can't tell you some of the nicknames my players called me at times. And, and we, you would have you would have been really proud of me last last year. We had, I have multiple nicknames for each player. I mean, we have some players that have four or five different nicknames, and it's so much fun. Yeah, you yeah. know. I think I got that from you. I got that from you and I got that from my dad because my dad nicknamed me Champ and uh-huh. Pumpkin. Those were two of his favorites. I don't uh-huh. know where the pumpkin came from, yeah. you know, but I, I lean on the champ all the time and I use that, you know, as aspiration. But yeah. but uh yeah, we had so many nicknames back at, at Boise State for for the players like Dish and Bear and Punto, uh-huh. and and those are just a few. Yeah. Oh no, that was a great. It's a sense of belonging. Is the nicknames give you a sense of belonging to the the group that you're in, and we all want to be accepted. And once you get, and that's the thing, nicknames always have to be positive. It always has a positive, re, you know, uh, L, you know, resonance to it. it. Has to resonate. It's not, you know, chump or, you know, <laughs> it's, it's got to be. We even had a guy named Jammer. I mean, talking about all the music references today. Yeah. Remember Jammer. It was like JJ. Yeah. Yeah, we've had, oh man, we've had so many. Oh yeah. So, you know, even my kids, you know, I my my daughter have a nickname that I call her all the time and I don't even know what her real name was. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with the G Man. That's my yeah. son. It was, yeah, it's it's a sense of it's it's a it's like a Valentine. It makes like, it more fun. It makes it more fun and it's a sign of affection. Um, and I think the players and the recipients in general really appreciate it, you know, because it, it shows that you care and that you've taken the time to really understand who they are as human beings and you value them. Coach, I want to thank you for all the time that you've given us today and the value that you continue to bring in my life and that you've brought to the audience through this podcast. I mean, we haven't even scraped the surface of your infinite wisdom. And you know that I mean that it comes from the heart because we've been in the trenches and you'd pick me up at 630 in the morning to go head over to the indoor courts with the music blaring. I mean, the energy that you bring to the table every day is palpable, but I think more important, it's real. Thank you. Thank Thank you, coach. Thank you. Thank you. Be good. Same thing. God bless you, brother. It's always good talking to you. <laughs> you too. It's the-